Welcome to the Personality Psychology Podcast. My name is Lisa Lindemore, and today I'm joined by three experts on personality and psychopathology. Thank you all for being here today. To get a better sense of what you do in the field of personality and psychopathology, could you maybe each briefly introduce yourselves and your line of research on this topic, and maybe also one specific research project that you're currently working on? So I'm Bob Kruger, and I work at the University of Minnesota in the United States. I was trained as a clinical psychologist, but also in personality psychology. So I've always been you know, fascinated with the connection between personality and psychopathology, and I've done work throughout my career focused on trying to understand how those, how those concepts are connected. And a lot of the work that I do now focuses on taking behavior genetic approaches to um, addressing those kinds of issues. So we work with large samples of community dwelling twins. So I direct something called the Minnesota Twin Registry, which is a registry of um, older twins um, who were all born in Minnesota. And so um, we um, survey them right on various kinds of dimensions and also collect data on things like biomarkers and cognition, right? And so the idea there is to understand things like the relationship between um, various kinds of personality factors and various kinds of um, psychopathology and also late life uh, health outcomes in both the physical health and cognitive domains. I'm Odilia Lakai. I'm I work at Utrecht University at Developmental Psychology. So I'm a developmental psychologist studying personality and psychopathology in youth mainly, and especially in the transition from adolescence to adulthood. And I started more with population cohorts and yeah, research in large population cohort samples, but moving more and more to clinical populations, which clearly is also a little bit slow science, right? So you can spend years and years collecting data in a couple of hundreds young people following them up for a longer period of time. But I think this is a really nice population where different fields can touch each other, right? So of course, just clinical psychology, but also developmental psychology and dimensional approaches to psychopathology, which we will talk about today more. They just fit perfectly with that more the transition the, the development of psychopathology and the transition to adulthood while we shouldn't forget that developmental psychology has a long history of dimensional approaches already so that's what i focus on most is that the intersection of clinical psychology and developmental psychology in the link between personality and psychopathology one of the clinical projects we started to collect in data like five years ago so now we do have quite a nice sample of youth that we followed for a longer period of time where we try to to look at personality using of course a, a, and personality pathology using a dimensional approach but also enrich it for example we use a alternative model to personality disorders but we also enrich it for example with narratives so the, the more on on identity the turning points that several of you may be familiar with so we try to have like a very inclusive, a rich perspective to development and psychopathology. My name is Johannes Zimmermann. I'm working as a professor of personality psychology at University of Kassel in Germany. And um, I started um, in clinical psychology in Heidelberg. And in that department, they value the psychodynamic approaches to clinical disorders and to psychotherapy. And so this is a link that I really uh, value and I also appreciate in my in my research goals. Try to make use of these models and try to 
investigate them with current state statistics and methods. One of my uh, interests is the intersection of personality and personality pathology. And I try to translate some of these new instruments into the German language and do some psychometric analysis with these instruments. And one of the, the recent projects from my lab, for example, was about constructing um, a new measure of mentalizing, which, which is a, a construct at the heart of personality pathology. And um, we, we try to improve uh, current measures and we assess using this measure the certainty people have about um, their own uh, mental states and the, the mental states of other people. And we found that as one exemplary finding that um, one marker of personality pathology is that people are very certain about what other people think, but very uncertain about their own emotions and, and thoughts. And so this imbalance of being certain about others and being uncertain about oneself is, is like a very risky profile, can lead to negative consequences. And maybe these people are have difficulties in learning from social interactions. And this is something I, I want to proceed in my research to better understand how certainty plays out in, in daily life. Sounds very interesting and also nice that it really, really differentiates people who are, or well, if we're talking about a dimensional approach, um, who have more pathological personalities perhaps than other people. And I think this also nicely uh, brings us to, to my next topic that I would like to talk about. Odidia, of course, also already mentioned this dimensional approach. And this is also really something that we've seen over the last couple of years, of course, really this shift of a more categorical idea about um, what psychopathology is. People have a disorder or they don't have a disorder to a more dimensional approach where there's variations and where maybe labels of yes or no are, are of less value. And in this dimensional approach may, of course, also bring up the idea or maybe the question on whether psychopathology simply represents more extreme ends of what is uh, a normal personality continuum. And I think we've, we've, of course, seen a lot of research. You've, you've been part of, of writing a lot of that research. And I'm, I'm just wondering, uh, as a very basic question, what do you think are the main benefits of this continu continuous approach versus a more categorical approach? One of the key things is to try to figure out that question based on evidence. So the presumption throughout the history of psychiatry has been that for something to be a legitimate mental disorder construct, it's categorical by definition. So this is sort of embedded in the diagnostic manuals that have come out of psychiatry, and those manuals have been very influential throughout mental health, so through allied disciplines like psychology and so on. And that is an assumption, right, that's built into the way those manuals are constructed. And I think what a lot of people are interested in, right, having training in things like you know, statistics and psychometrics and so on in a discipline like psychology is evaluating that assumption. So trying to figure out what does the evidence look like, right? We could try to determine on the basis of things we observe, like the things that patients you know, report, whether we think that these concepts are more continuous or more discrete. So I think that's been, you know, sort of a major contribution of things that personality psychology would be familiar with, right? So methods for evaluating the nature of variables and their distribution and so on. And I think the reason that a lot of people, like you know, how you got the three of us together, are starting to really focus on more continuous or dimensional approaches is because the evidence is generally 
very much in favor of that being the sort of empirical nature of psychopathology variation. Right? So there's less evidence for those things being categories, right, based on the way they're distributed, and more evidence of those things being continuous dimensions. And I think that putting that conceptualization on an evidentiary basis, right, so using you know, data to try to figure out how that stuff really works has been a big topic of interest in the field. I think it also has to do with a trade-off, right, between what is handy in clinical practice. It's it's just practical to have categories and classification, use cutoffs. It's really difficult, I think, to really omit those things, to not use them at all. At the same time, especially as researchers, as scholars, we want to know what best reflects those psychological constructs. We want to understand how people differ in their personality or their psychopathology. And I think we kind of agree that in general, those cutoffs and classification systems are very handy, but the, they are not the best representation of those psychological constructs. Yeah, maybe I could add that a dimensional understanding of differences between people who are mentally healthy and those who suffer from problems, a dimensional understanding will also help to destigmatize because then there is a continuum and it's not a split between us and them. And, and it will be helpful to have an, a positive, supportive attitude to people who are currently suffering more than oneself. And there's also empirical evidence that a dimensional concept helps to destigmatize. Yeah, and at the same time, right, we do not want to, to, to stigmatize. And at the same time, we do want to recognize symptoms or problems as early as possible. So with a, from a developmental perspective, and then I'm not only talking about children, right? We can have a lifespan developmental perspective here. So psychopathology symptoms do not come out of nowhere, right? There is some kind of growing thing going on. They are developing in some way, whether that's early in life or later on. And ideally, we do not wait until it's a full-blown disorder with all kinds of symptoms and other criteria uh, that are met. Especially, for example, when we think about personality pathology, it makes sense to recognize those symptoms early, right? And the only way to do that is to acknowledge that there already is something going on before there is a full-blown disorder. So then we, we can either have a really nice dimensional way to, way to study it as we do with the alternative model, for example. Or we can just use the, the features or the symptoms of a borderline personality disorder, for example, rather than using the cutoff. Probably one may be more nuanced and, and better than the other. But both ways have the benefit that you can already recognize those, those symptoms early and that it, you're not dependent on the full-blown disorder and maybe the stigmatization that goes with the diagnosis. Maybe another point that's coming to mind is that a dimensional system, in my opinion, better acknowledges the individual case and the unique profile of the individual case. So if you have 10 different categories, you have to put a person into one of them. But if you have, let's say, a five-dimensional system, every person is like a point in a five-dimensional space. And so it's much more individualized in the terms of description. And so I think dimensional systems are helpful to improve the precision 
of the description of the problems. That's an interesting point, because on one hand, I tend to agree, but I also wonder how that relates to the person-centered approaches, which are assumed to do better justice, right, to the person as a whole, uh, than the variable-centered approaches, which are often similar to the dimensional approaches. It's not identical, but uh, so, so how do you see that then, Johannes? I agree that there is this tradition that looks at the whole profile and that then tries to find different prototypical profiles and then again puts person into different categories of profiles. And I think this is in a way a misunderstanding or a misapplication because if you really think consequently dimensionally, then you have much more op options for a precise description. I agree with what Johannes is saying there. It's something that we've studied, you know, in our own research, right? So you can take a series of dimensions and look for kind of clumps, right, within them, right? So you you can look for kind of, you know, clumps of people within those dimensions and sort of what has sometimes been called, um, you know, the psychiatrist Ari Kendall called this zones of rarity, right? So within that dimensional space, there might be, you know, clumps of people like this, and then a zone of rarity where you don't observe very many people, and then another kind of clump. And when we've tried to study this using, you know, statistical kinds of approaches, what we find, and I think other people find this too, is that there isn't a lot of clumpiness in that space. Rather, people are kind of distributed throughout the space. So I think that you can take a very person-centered approach practically from a dimensional standpoint by realizing that there are people throughout that dimensional space. And that really leads to a very personalized way of understanding a patient that you might encounter because everybody's kind of unique in terms of how they're configured across the major variable-centered dimensions. But the variable-centered dimensions provide a kind of atlas, kind of like looking at a map, right? If you think about the ordinal directions on a the map, they're sort of arbitrary, like you could tilt the map different ways. But we all agree on what's north, what's south, what's east, what's west, just to orient all of us to the map in the same way, even if regions are continuous across all of that. So I think in, that metaphor works pretty well for, for, you know, case conceptualization, for understanding people. And I think getting back to Johannes's point, that's that's very helpful in the clinic in case conceptualization, right? This isn't a person who is suffering from personality disorder X. Right. This is a person who has problems with this, some strengths over here, right, and so on and so forth. Leads to a much more nuanced and clinically useful description. Okay, so if I understand you, there's quite a few benefits to using this dimensional approach. There's also some uh, perhaps more practical advantages, maybe especially for, for clinical purposes of just uh, using labels in which people might or might not fit. I am wondering, and you also mentioned the, the, the clinical practice already, and um, you touched upon personality pathology. Do you think that this dimensional approach works better or, or less well if we are talking about axis one versus axis two disorders? The axis one, axis two distinction, which arose with the third edition of the DSM in 1980, was done away with in the most recent fifth edition of the DSM. And I had the you know privilege of being involved in some of those discussions, and I can say that the reason it was done away with isn't particularly compelling in my view. It was simply asserted that it was too much for busy clinicians, essentially, right? That the multi-axial system was just too much, and you know nobody really uses it very correctly anyway. So we'll just have major you know 
diagnoses. Um, but then turning to the data, I don't think that I'm aware of evidence that what used to be called axis one disorders are any more or less continuous in nature than what used to be called axis two or personality disorders, right? So my reading of the evidence is that both kinds of concepts are similarly better fit with dimensional kinds of models, if that's kind of the question that I think you're asking, right? So again, I mean, I would say that ultimately we, there's just no way around relying on evidence for this stuff. The more I think about this, right, and the more I've been involved in the field, I just, it's, it's never going to be a good idea in the long run to do things based on tradition or authority as opposed to based on evidence. Because having things based on evidence is the way you create credibility with the public. And if you don't have that credibility, you're immediately lost, right, as a profession or as a, you know, kind of scientific endeavor. So if we're going to go with the evidence as the basis, um, I think the evidence is fairly clear that things are continuous, whether they used to be on axis one or used to be on axis two. That's a clear answer. I'm also wondering, because of course I started out this topic by talking about personality and psychopathology, and we're talking about a continuum, but if we're talking about this continuum, where do you actually uh, see these two things? Are they on the same scale and one is on one end and one is on the other? Or is normal personality just a metaphor that we can use to also visualize how we think about psychopathology? Probably also a difference what, what psychopathology you look at, right? So there, there are several papers, Bob and I did one on in, in youth with a student of mine on personality and pathological personality traits. And there you see it's it's quite a bit of a spectrum, not perfect, especially not for openness and psychoticism. I think most studies do not find much of a spectrum there. But for the other traits, like the big five traits and the pathological parallel traits, assumed parallel traits, uh, you see, you find quite a bit of a spectrum. But I, I can imagine that differs quite a bit when you look at the other types of psychopathology. And still, even if you, if you have a, a personality trait and a pathological personality trait, for example, it won't be a hundred percent a spectrum for me, right? So there's, there's, of course, there's all those, there's, yeah, all those other factors that play a role. But especially when you look at personality and other types of psychopathology, I can imagine that it's not so much a spectrum. And also, it's I think very important when you think about the relationship between personality and psychopathology. That there are all those diff other different models, right? So it's there's the spectrum model, but also related models like the the vulnerability model and the diabetes stress model. If other factors come in, there are plenty of models, and there's quite a bit of support for all those models. But it's also very clear that they're not mutually exclusive, right? So so they can all be true, and it may depend on the personality trait and the other measure, the psychopathology measure or whatever outcome measure you take, whether one model is slightly better than the other. So for some, it may be that the spectrum is, is quite okay, um, but that doesn't mean that it's not at the same time also a vulnerability model or another other type of model. Right? And there are a few papers that try to compare those models, um, but so far, especially when it comes to falsifying other models, it turns out to be quite complex. And I also think that it's important to acknowledge that personality and psychopathology is both based on description of experiences and behaviors. So people describe what they experience and informants or medical doctors describe what they are reported and what they observe. And so the basis of all this are human judgments. 
there's not a test for major depressive disorder or a, a test like you can have a test for a virus infection. So it's only description of human behavior. And so if you factor analyze these descriptions, of course, you will find similar structures. I think it's not surprising that, that they are highly uh, related and that you find similar structures if you are analyzing human judgment of person characteristics. And I think the major difference is the time frame. So usually in the classical axis one disorders, you have these specific criteria for, oh, it's only depression um, if it's at least two weeks, if the symptoms have a specific duration. And for personality disorders, usually you say it's starting in adolescence or at least five years. So it's a difference in the time frame, but the, the common core is human judgment about behavior. Okay, so maybe it's too easy to say they are on the same continuum. They're definitely related. It might be that they're that they're at least somewhat part of the same scale, but um, many other different relations could at the same time also exist. And I think the point that Johannes made is also very very valid. That the same, yeah, maybe it's a very extreme case also of a sort of same method bias, right? Where we're basically asking people to do the same thing, um, but with slightly different type of items. Absolutely. So um, the DSM is not about the causes of mental disorders. It's only about grouping of symptom descriptions. And this is uh, really something different from other medical disciplines. And I think this has been in a way forgotten, or maybe it's only wishful thinking that people hope that they constructed something that is more closely to medical disorders. But I think it's not the case. It's human judgment data. I mean, I could chime in and say something like, it's also, I think, inescapable that it's sitting at the level of people's um, behaviors and experiences because that's the nature of what we're confronted with in our clinical work, right? So here's a hypothetical that occurs to me sometimes. Let's say that someone developed a fairly sensitive and specific biomarker of depression, right? So you could do something like take a blood sample and send it to the lab and have a, a something that's reasonably well correlated with the subjective experience of being depressed. But now you encounter a patient who reports a lot of depression, right? So difficulty getting out of bed, can't go to work, frequently very sad, tearful in the interview, right? So all these things that we associate with that concept. And the biomarker test comes back as negative. What would you do as the clinician? I don't think you would say, well, look, the test is negative, so presumably you feel fine, right? What, what matters, what you're confronted with as a clinician is human suffering, which has its inherently subjective element to it because it's the person who's suffering and you're tasked with trying to help. So I think this idea of, of you know, reductionism at some level is a little bit um, absurd when you think through examples like that. This is not to say that understanding mechanisms, right, so biological processes and systems that underlie human experience is somehow not a worthy endeavor. That's obviously an important thing to try to pursue to understand those mechanisms, but it's 
it's part of trying to understand what ultimately matters in the clinic, which is people's behaviors and experiences. That's probably a place where also the, the DSM differs from just a dimensional approach to psychopathology, just measuring psychopathology on a continuum. What it lacks compared to the DSM is that the DSM at least is supposed to take into account functioning, right? And the, the more advanced, I'm not sure that they, that they do a great job there, um, but at least there is a component on functioning uh, in, the, in the criteria. And whereas just measuring psychopathology in a dimensional way is probably not enough. It, also when you want to look at recovery, right? So if we want to know whether a patient recovers, we do not just want to know whether the number of symptoms, when there is a symptom reduction, we want to know whether functioning improves. So what if the if the number of depressive symptoms doesn't decrease so much, but a client is going to work again or is able to have a more or less stable relationship? Does it mean that there is no recovery because we do not see symptom reduction? I think it's pretty likely that in therapy it's easier to improve the functioning tend to decrease the symptoms, especially in personality pathology. So that just shows that just measuring psychopathology on a dimensional scale is not enough. And clearly there are nice developments that take into account functioning, right? So the alternative model to personality disorders that I mentioned before, they differentiate between the criteria B, which is those pathological traits, in addition to criteria A, which is more on, on self and interpersonal functioning. And I think you do need th those two components to have the uh, dimensional approach to psychopathology really do justice to the individual needs of the clients, but also to, un to understanding those processes. Yeah, this is a very valid point. And it brings up the question, what is functioning? So I'm often thinking about this question because it's not so clear what this means. And I think it's a very important term if you want to distinguish personality from personality pathology or mm. personality disorder. It's a very central term. And it's also a very central term in the DSM um, because actually it's part of the definition of a mental disorder. But what means functioning? And I think there are different interpretations. And one interpretation that is also incorporated in criterion A is that is something internal. It's a, a mechanism that maybe developed during the evolution and that has a specific function that broke down, that is not longer working and people are not longer able to be empathic or to connect to other people because they have an internal deficit, an inability. And this is one interpretation. And I think this is often highlighted in the DSM for many mental disorders. On the other hand, what you mentioned in your example is that people are no longer able to work, to live their daily lives, to perform their roles. I think this is a different interpretation of functioning because it's more about the consequences of the symptoms and not about the causes. And in a way, this first interpretation of functioning is like introducing a causal hypothesis and a causal assumption about mental disorders, while the second option, if you interpret it in negative consequences, it's more descriptive. And I think at least this is my take on this term functioning. And I'm sure there are different takes on that. And maybe we can talk about this because I'm really often confused when reading papers that this term is so vaguely and imprecisely defined. 
Yeah, I fully, I fully agree with the imprecision of the definition. And I do think that developmental psychology has quite a long tradition in understanding fun functioning more in terms of what is age appropriate, right? So in terms of developmental tasks or milestones, and then it becomes a little bit easier, right? So you don't expect a toddler to take a shower on his or her own, but you hope that your adolescent will at some point in time. So I think, especially when it comes to, to things like social relationships, setting boundaries, autonomy, I think from a developmental perspective, I think we do have quite an idea on what we understand with regard to functioning. However, it's not that much integrated yet with the, with the broader field of psychopathology and abnormal psychology, clinical psychology. So I think there's, there's much more to do. And also because, especially when you think about adults, it's much harder to define, right? So what is then good functioning? Is it good when the when the person thing is is happy, right? If it's yeah, if there's high life satisfaction, is that enough then? Probably not. But what what then should you measure? How 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 should you measure it? With what type of questionnaire? I don't know. Yeah, and the the challenge empirically, as you both appreciate and have written about, is how to figure out separable assessments of more functioning constructs and more dispositional constructs. Because ideally, like you were saying something about the person is happy, right? And we all know how that item is going to behave, right? Mm -hmm. That's going to be an indicator of positive affect. And so yeah. therefore a dispositional indicator. And so that's, that's, I think, been the real challenge empirically. I think conceptually and clinically, you know, speaking in terms of the AMPD, you know, DSM's alternative model of personality disorders, it's pretty clear clinically what's meant by criterion A concepts versus criterion B concepts. And I think they're indispensable for case conceptualization. And then the challenge, you know, in the in the research literature has been that the measures that have been developed with these things are correlated. And maybe that's fine because they kind of should be, right? Like a person who is functioning at a certain level would be predicted to have some dispositional qualities that kind of go along with that, even though they're conceptually distinct. And so this is a this is a big challenge to the field because as Johannes was articulating, there's that way of thinking about personality functioning. Like what did what did the personality system, I guess, evolve to do? That sounds kind of teleological. Maybe not the right language, but basically like what's this system about? Like what's it trying to do for human beings in general? Um, versus what you know, the broader societies we live in expect of us, which is more that other, you know, sort of traditional DSM style idea of social and occupational functioning. Like, you know, that goes back to Freud, as we all know, right? He's supposed to be able to love and to work. So that's another way of thinking about it. And that one probably works better empirically, I, I think, right? In my experience of playing with data like that, but it's not really necessarily what personality disorder scholars mean by personality functioning. They mean something more like what the personality is trying to accomplish or do or something like this, right? Versus um, what society expects of you, which is also provocative if we start to get into it, right? Should we in the mental health business be imposing ideas on people about what's expected of them? Because that is kind of what social and occupational functioning is. Get out of bed, go to work, be a productive member of society. What if someone objects to that? So that gets into fairly interesting issues about the relationship between the person their non-normative behavior, if you will, and the ability of society to impose particular kinds of values and ideas on particular people. So it's it's very difficult stuff, right? It's hard empirically, it's hard conceptually, 
And it's at some level, all of this is pretty provocative in terms of the power that mental health disciplines have over people and how that's been fraught at various points in the history of all this stuff. I think you make a very good point. At the same time, well, I, I don't think it necessarily diminishes your point, Bob, but I do think that's why it's so good that we that at least there are these these two these two criteria. So if someone's not getting out of bed, then at least it's not enough to put a label on them. Uh, they also need to actually be unhappy about it. So in that sense, I guess it's a good thing that it's just the symptoms part is not enough. That also just the functioning part is not enough. But it's a, I think it's a very good topic and good discussion that you just raised because I think it's a, in addition to whether or not the psychopathology part is uh, should be conceptualized as a dimension, also just the yeah the the, the functioning part is a also very much an open question so maybe for another episode we, we could fill an entire episode about this but I think maybe returning to more the, the psychopathology part I know a lot of your work uh, of all of you actually has has dealt with examining or at least trying to find a structure of, of psychopathology and I know one model that has been, has been put forth and that has had quite a bit of traction is the, the high top model, so the hierarchical taxonomy of psychopathology. I could, of course, briefly introduce the high top model myself, but I think you would probably all do a much better job at it than I would. So maybe one of you would like to briefly explain what the high top model entails. In the traditional DSM style approach to categorizing psychopathology, the idea is that there are literally hundreds of different categories. And you as the clinician are supposed to figure out which of these hundred categories is the best description of what you've encountered, you know, in terms of the patient's presentation. So you pick one, you know, of these categories typically. In some cases you might say, well, two categories are applicable, but generally speaking, the idea is one of differential diagnosis, right? So pick the one that fits best. I think what, what HITOP as a consortium is working on is saying that the evidence isn't compatible with that approach because people don't sort themselves neatly into hundreds of categories in terms of their presentation of psychopathology in the clinic. What the presentations look like, again, based on the evidence, is that they kind of cluster into broad, dimensionally organized groupings of symptoms and experiences. So the hierarchical part is that the sort of breadth versus detail that you want to describe people at is a continuous kind of thing. So you could describe people very broadly in terms of how you know much psychopathology do they have overall, right? A very general dimension of psychopathology all the way down to very specific symptoms and experiences, you know, things like a specific fear of dentists, for example, right, would be very specific relative to an over, you know, arching dimension of psychopathological experience. So hopefully that, you know, is brief enough for your purposes, but that's, I think, kind of what High Top's about, trying to articulate that model of, you know, dimensions of psychopathology organized into these big groupings as an alternative to the differential diagnosis approach that's traditional in the DSM manuals. And it's not completely different with, from what we have done with other psychological constructs, right? So for intelligence, where we think that's perfectly normal to eh, have some kind of general intelligence factor. And we also sometimes do it for personality, right? So there are people studying more like a general personality factor. 
So the idea that there uh, that there is like a hierarchy in a psychological construct that's not new, but it is very different from the assumption of of dimensionality is very different from what we used to do with the DSM. I think about it in terms of level of abstraction. So this whole system is about description. It doesn't explain anything in a strong sense. It provides a way, like a map, to describe symptoms as precise as possible. And you can pick the right level of abstraction depending on your goals. So if you have the goal to make a very broad prognosis, so maybe you can be at a more abstract level of description. And as Bob um, mentioned, you only quantify the amount of psychopathology in general. But if you want a more specific profile of problems, maybe to plan and select the right interventions, then it's useful to, to go down and make a very specific description. So it's a flexible system. And also it's not necessary to, to have only one threshold for cases. You can also include multiple thresholds depending on the goals and depending on a specific decision. And it is also more flexible in including and considering measurement error. So you can use instruments and get a precision estimate. How precise is my assessment? And this is not possible with classical categorical disorders. It's not usual practice, but I think it's important. It's very standard, uh, as Odilia mentioned, in intelligence assessment, where it's very normal that you also consider the precision of your assessment because you have to you have to defend your decisions, and there's uncertainty, and you have to really appreciate these uncertainty. And I really think that. One of the big pluses of being a trained psychologist is that you are aware of the imprecision. And I think HITOP is a system that fully embraces this psychometric principles. Isn't that at the same time also the challenge for clinical practice, then how exactly to use it, right? So I think we started with the DSM, it's that it's that it's handy, right? So it's easy that you have all those categories and you fit in one or two and that's it. Whereas for the high top model, and I think for, for other similar models, it's the same. Isn't it a, the challenge to, in the end, really get rid of those cutoffs and thresholds? You say it's flexible, you can have multiple thresholds, but isn't the risk then that you will end up with still putting people in categories? I think that's one. That's a question that's often often raised in this context, right? My opinion is that one thing that has not, not been mentioned yet in relation to HITOP is that it's evidence-based, or this is the ideal. It is based on data. So for example, if you have a longitudinal study with let's say 10,000 participants that are assessed with a comprehensive HITOP measure, and then they are followed up across 10 years. And then you can investigate different cutoffs regarding the risk for let's say criminal actions or suicidal gestures and so on. So you can really empirically define cutoffs where intervention is useful. And I think this is much better than um, an arbitrary selection of five out of nine symptoms. So I think these cutoffs, they are not considered as new categories. They are more like helpful 
benchmarks to make decisions. As a last question, what do you think are parts of the model that have some empirical support and what parts of the model do you think are the next future steps to be examined? Maybe may go in two directions, right? So one is how can we best use it in clinical practice? How can we help clinicians, right, that may not have like a big statistical background to still use it yeah, in, a, in a reliable, valid way? Whereas the other direction is probably exactly the opposite, and that is how can we develop further develop these types of models to even make them just better models, regardless of how complex they are and how easily easily they can be used in clinical practice. Just further developing the best models, and I think right discussions like this one, but also discussions that have been published in response to like critiques to. To, to the different to the different approaches to the DSM to high top to general factor models, they will help us further fine tune and think critically think together on what exactly we are doing and how we can do an even better job. And I think that those are very different directions that both are that we both should try to follow. Just to follow up on your first thought, Odilia. I, I fully agree. Maybe we should also conduct studies like randomized controlled trials with um, assessment. So really comparing a clinic that uses dimensional measures like HITOP and clinics who do not use it, and then really assess it using gold standard methods, whether this has an impact on everyday practice. And of course, they have to be trained and we have to make sure that the methods are used in an appropriate way, but it's very similar to mental health treatments. We could also evaluate the diagnostic practice and look for the effects. And I think that has not been done in a comprehensive manner so far. And this is something I, I would looking forward to during the next years. I want to end it by uh, thanking you all for being uh, here today and, and for joining the podcast and for sharing your thoughts and your experience on this topic. I really uh, enjoyed it. Thanks for having us. Thank you for the invitation. Yes, thanks, uh, Lisanne.